I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you very much for joining me again on Dealmakers DNA. I'm beyond excited, actually. I mean, the podcast may be done by the time I introduce my guest because of how accomplished he is. And I know he's humble, so he's going to hate this part, but Mo, too bad. You got you to you stick it out. I'm joined by uh, Mo Litsky. I have to actually read part of your background, Mo, and I know you very well just because of how many things that uh, you do. But Mo is the, the current CEO of uh, Prime Quadrant. He's also been a part of many, many uh, philanthropic endeavors. He's the current chairman of CAF Canada. He organizes the Prime Quadrant Conference, which is unbelievable. And I want to talk about that a little bit later. Mo also sits on the boards of several nonprofit organizations, such as the, uh, the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, Hebrew University, and Holland Bloorview Hospital. Prior to Prime Quadrant, Mo was the, uh, the CEO of Yeshiva University in Canada. And uh, if that wasn't enough, he is the author of, uh, of, or co-author of four books, and somehow he had enough time to actually convince someone to marry him and has five children, you know, maybe six after this. Who the heck knows? I mean, given the situation, not much else. <laughs> Mo, welcome, my friend. I mean, not only is your background impressive and not only is that important, but I consider you a very good friend and a, and a great human being. So thank you for being a part of this. So Mo, for those who who don't know your story, maybe you could just start us off at, you know, what's the beginning? What was your early childhood life like? I mean, I want to spend, you know, it's very easy for us to talk about COVID right now. It's very easy to talk about the investment landscape, and maybe we'll touch upon some of those things, but I really want to get to know you. And just for the context of this podcast, the people that are listening are, are young entrepreneurs, people who want to be in your shoes uh, down the road. And what I really want to try and accomplish is, is help those individuals learn from your story. So how did it all start? I mean, what, what was Little Mo? Did you always know you were destined for this? Like I often say that I was, um, you know, I had the advantage that many of my affluent friends did not. I had the, the luxury of being born dirt poor. And um, my earliest memories, if I had to think back, were actually my mother waking me up in the middle of the night. So I was born and raised in uh, the former Soviet Union in Ukraine. And I must have been about five years old. My mother wakes me up in the middle of the night. It's uh, three o'clock in the morning. It's a frigid, frigid winter night in Ukraine, in Kharkov, which is where I'm from. She picks me up, drags me, and we're standing in line surrounded by hundreds of people in the middle of the night, 3.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30. And finally, sometime around five o'clock in the morning, a bread truck shows up. And, you know, the bread truck opens up. And uh, eventually, you know, the bread never makes it into the stores. You know, they kind of dispersed it to the communist elite, to the communist secondary party or whatever it is. Eventually, they got to the Jews and we got a little morsel uh, that we walked away with. And so I, you know, until that point, I'm five years old, I never really thought about how my mother put a slice of bread on my plate for breakfast. But I certainly knew that you know, you go to any of the stores and the shelves are empty. It tells you a lot. And so you come out of that. And you know, when we immigrated, we were refugees for a couple of years, and we ended up in Italy and Austria, and subsequently in Cleveland, Ohio. You come to appreciate things. On the one hand, 
the first time you walk into a supermarket and you see three types of oranges and five types of apples, like you think you've just died and, and woke up in heaven. On the other hand, also my parents were very accomplished engineers and architects in Ukraine. And when we showed up here, my mother was a cleaning lady. My father drove a truck. In fact, he still drives a truck. And it was tough to kind of get by. So ever since I was 12 years old, I was more or less forced to or felt pressure to contribute to work full-time hours. And again, it was just fate or destiny or combination of factors that sort of drove me to start a business because quite frankly, nobody's hiring a 12-year-old. So the only thing that you could do, you could cut lawns, you could uh, clean snow, you could... uh, My very first business actually was um, when I came, made a friend or two in the neighborhood and I visited his house. And I remember I'm a fidgety kid, as you could tell, I'm fidgeting right now as we speak because Elon, you and I have that ADD thing in common. I've taken my Ritalin, so I'm a little better right now. <laughs> Ritalin. Yeah, I'm trying to hold back or pair back. So anyway, so I remember sticking my hands in the, in the cushions of the couch and all of a sudden pulling out a quarter and then sticking another you know, hand in the cushion of the other couch and putting out a dime. And in Ukraine, in Europe, we had these, the couches were actually like one piece. They, you didn't have cushions. So you didn't have coins that fell out and fell between. You didn't have keys. And I remember the, the wealthiest kid in our lower not even middle class, like lower class neighborhood, the wealthiest kid in the neighborhood, their parents got a dust buster. And that was like, they made it. They really made it in the world. And so I, uh, his parents didn't, we got done with school around three o'clock. His parents didn't get home till five. And I thought, you know what, can I borrow your dust buster for two hours? So I borrowed his dust buster and I would go door to door knocking on people's doors. Like, can I clean your couches? I'll clean it a bucket couch, but I keep whatever's inside. And I sort of, other than car keys, which I had to give back from time to time, you know, I averaged about a buck sixty-five a couch. So your first job, you were a thief, Mo. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, because I, I told them I was keeping whatever is in there. Full <laughs> uh, disclosure. Yeah. It's, uh, anyway, what ended up happening was um, my buddy at some point, whose dust buster it is, he uh, calls me up one day and he says, you know, what do you do with my busted dust buster every day? So I told him and he said, well, it's my dust buster. So I want in. So, so, you know, things got complicated and uh, all of a sudden you start sharing. And then I started borrowing other people's dust busters. We had a group of a couple of kids going around, a straightening, taking a little piece of, of everybody's um, transaction fees. And so that was kind of my introduction to business. I mean, that was, you know, and from there, I mean, every odd end job you could imagine until I started my first saleable company when I was uh, 17. Again, like most things in life, it kind of happens by necessity. And uh, long story short, I was in Israel. I ran out of money. Happened to be a period of time when in um, the Jewish community, there's a, about a 33-day window on the calendar in which we currently actually sit and during which you don't cut hair. And so in Israel... No problem for me. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't have been a customer, but there, there were in the little kibbutz on which I was living at the time, there's going to be 7,000 people in the surrounding area that would have to go into the main city to cut hair. So I remember walking through Jerusalem one time thinking I have like 300 shekel left to my name. How am I going to do anything with it? I happened to just pass by, coincidentally, a little flea market, saw a barber chair and a barber trimmers, like effectively equipment. I thought to myself, well, you know, there's got to be at least 30 people. Like a haircut is 30 shekel, which is equivalent to like seven and a half dollars at that time. I said, there's got to be, I don't know, 30 people out of 7,000 that will just take the most basic haircut for a third of the price, you know? And then if that proves to be the case, I'll end up breaking even, I'll have a free asset and then I'll figure out what to do. 
and ended up buying the thing, dragging it to the kibbutz, and then had a friend of mine who was artistic draw up pictures of what was ostensibly the worst haircut you could have imagined, like a guy cutting an ear off, getting like scissors stuck in, called it the Ukrainian buzz incidentally, advertised it all over because this 33rd day when all 7,000 people are going to be able to cut their hair was coming up. And uh, lo and behold, I had a lineup out the door and I'll skip the long story. But what ended up happening, it became a little bit of a novelty in the area. And so much so that people came from other areas and said, oh, we don't actually have barbershop demographics don't warrant it. So all of us have to go into a big city. Do you mind coming in for one day a week? And on and on. Eventually, I had 13 locations, which were effectively pop up barbershops running at any point in time across Israel. And um, had a funny story about selling that business, but I'll skip that for another time. Amazing. I mean, you know, a huge part of why I call this podcast a dealmaker's DNA is because I think, you know, my backgrounds in genetics have always been obsessed with the argument of nature and nurture. And in your, your original story, you, you touched upon both of them, right? I mean, you come from very humble beginnings, communism, refugee, you name it. I mean, it's very hard to, to hack that form of nurture. But you also said your parents were successful and they, they were clearly, you know, they had DNA that they passed on to you that has led you to be, you know, a fairly smart individual. And in your opinion, and I want to touch upon the, throughout this podcast, how much of people's success do you think boils down to nature versus nurture? And obviously it's a combination, but what's your view on how those things play together? I actually don't consider myself a terribly intelligent individual. I would probably put myself maybe average or slightly above average. I think on the business side, and, and you and I both know many people that were commercial successes that weren't necessarily the most cerebral and you know intelligent people that you'd meet, you'd actually have a hard time having even a casual conversation with them. So, and what intelligence is and what success is are all- well, but Intelligence from a DNA standpoint doesn't have to just mean raw IQ. It could mean like our ability to connect with, with people. I mean, sure. you're an incredibly relatable person. You've always had, you're clearly a born leader. You know, how much of that was based on necessity Versus that's just who you are. You're an extrovert. That's just, that's in your DNA. I would err a lot more on the nurture piece. I'm super glad that I'm having this conversation with you because I err more on the nature piece. So yeah. this will be so, a good debate. I'll tell you again, I because I remember looking at myself. I was this awkward kid. Like I came in, I didn't speak the language. We couldn't afford to buy clothes. For the first five years that we were in this country, the only clothes I bought was from like, a Salvation Army type group where, you know, there was like literally bullet holes in the shirts that I bought with bloodstains still on them, right? So, and my mother, I remember the first shoes she got me were, because they were the cheapest she could find, they were girl shoes. And then she got me this Oshkosh Pagash pull-up thing that like, I mean, I look like a moron. I was nerdy. I had thick glasses. I was afraid of my own shadow. And I could tell you, you know, I could almost point to a couple instances in my life where like the penny dropped or something shifted or somebody had some kind of influence that changed the trajectory. Can you give a couple examples of that, Mo? Because that's super interesting to me that you remember those foundational changes. So the fact that we're speaking right now and we could talk about anything and whether we were in front of 5,000 people or 50 people, or if it's just going to be you and I on this uh, webinar, that didn't come naturally to me. I mean, I was petrified of public speaking. I was petrified of being put on the spot. I remember there was a youth organization, I won't go into it, that I went, I used to go, they had like these social gatherings. 
I was at this organization. I must have been about 14 years old. And they call you up and you have to like give like a toast or like a little speech or whatever else. And I was mortified. I got up there. I was shaking. Invariably, I was going to make a fool of myself. It, there was like no scenario in which I would have exited that situation looking better than when I came in, right? There was absolutely not. But what happened was I had a couple of friends in the, in the audience and a couple of them, you know, sort of treated me like they were older. They, I was kind of like their little mascot. They're like pity case that they kept around just to entertain and maybe feel good about themselves because look at this little guy. And, you know, at some point, one of them, right as I was up there shaking, fearful, I couldn't even get the words out. And one of them is like, Mo, Mo, Mo. And then before you knew it, a couple of them started cheering. And out of nowhere, 300 people erupted cheering my name. Now, I'm a nerdy little 14-year-old with braces, thick glasses, like awkward clothes. And here I am standing on stage and there's hundreds of people cheering your name. And after that, I mean, I just felt like I belonged. But what was it about you that caused them to get behind you that way? Because by the description, why would someone have your back? I mean, clearly they saw something at that time that you're leaving out of the story. Because it's funny, I mean, I was a very overweight, shy, quiet kid myself. And the interesting part about it is I reflect on it and I say, did I turn into this extrovert or was I always the extrovert that never got to really be myself? And I've come to the conclusion that I honestly believe that this is, is who I am. And I think that my childhood and the bullying I went through and all that awkward stages, because I had the thick glasses, I had the braces, the whole thing. I was probably just a bigger, fatter version of you, to be honest with you. I'm convinced now more than ever, because you know I speak to my parents and they talk to me about how incredible that kind of transition was. And I'm just not so sure it was a foundational or fun, like fundamental shift in who I was as a person. I think it was me getting comfortable in my own skin and, and, and being allowed to actually be who I am. Like, I don't think that I'm faking being an extrovert. I believe I am an extrovert. Number one is I don't think the question of nature versus nurture is a binary one. I think there's a continuum. Number two, I think we all have, you know, there is nothing that could have happened in my history that would have made me a candidate for the NBA, right? Five foot four, five foot five, five foot six on a really good day, Jewish guy, not making it into the NBA, right? It didn't matter what kind of nurture I had along the way. So I think that there is a nature nurture continuum for sure, but I also think there is a um, sort of like a range of what we are all potentially capable of. And where we fall in on that range is going to be a function of how much we did, how much what experiences we have, which people we were surrounded by, and, you know, probably a stroke of good luck. Well, then we agree more now hearing that than, than maybe I thought, because I hate the advice that young people get today where you could be anything you want to be. That is complete and utter bullshit. And I think that it's really, really important. And, and, and I want to talk about these two things in particular is self-awareness and authenticity, because I really do believe that self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential. Because if you know what you're good at, you can double down on those things. And if you know what you're bad at, you can you know, find people in your team to compliment you. you know, I've always been fascinated by the interview question that people give to candidates and say, you know, what are your three weaknesses? Honestly, it's the fucking stupidest question of all time. Because I could tell you a million weaknesses I have, 
but that's not why you're hiring me. You're hiring me for my strengths. And the last thing I think people should be doing is be working on their weaknesses, you know, to become more well-rounded. No one who's achieved anything great is well-rounded. They're good at something. You know, it's going back to the NBA example. I mean, Michael Jordan was one hell of a basketball player. Probably can't do his taxes, right? And nor does he need to. So, you know, I'm a massive believer in doubling down on those strengths and, and being okay with those weaknesses. I mean, what's your view on self-awareness uh, in particular? So, I mean, just before, because you said something that I think is worth focusing on. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned um, once, you know, could you be anything you want to be, right? Like, and I mean, I've always had the belief that what we want isn't necessarily what we ought to be. Like wants are so flimsy, so flaky, and such a function of our exposure. Like if you grew up in a tiny village and the most prominent person was a doctor, you'd want to be a doctor. And if you grew up near the Vatican, you'd want to be a cardinal. And if you watch spy movies obsessively, you may want to be in the CIA, right? But the reality is we have dispositions and those dispositions lead us to a myriad of things that we should be doing and a myriad of things that we shouldn't be doing. Think of how many people you, you and I both know that said, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I want to get into finance. And then after spending decades of their life fighting to get into those fields, they realize how much they hate it and how miserable they are. And the fact is they should have never been a lawyer or a financier or whatever. So I think that to your point, like figuring out of much greater importance is really just to spend the time to figure out where are your greatest strengths? What stokes your passion? What are the capabilities, the natural raw capabilities that you have that lend them your, themselves to doing X, Y, and Z. How do young people do that? Like what are the tools that they could use to really look themselves in the mirror and go through that exercise? Because we're now a little older, we have a little more experience. And for me, it's, it's a lot easier to look in the mirror and now look at those strengths and weaknesses. I don't know how the heck I would have done that at 16, 17 years old. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, what's interesting. Like I think about this, what an advantage people have, like people that I, I, I'd be hiring or on our team and virtually, I don't know what you guys do, but a lot of businesses, when they're taking on people, they're doing all these testing, skill testing, communications testing. I don't know if you guys do any of that. Do you? We do some of it. Yeah. We do a lot more cultural testing than, than, than others. All of that, right? I mean, think about that. So the truth is, I actually never did it on myself until 20 years later. And when we were starting in the business 20 years ago, nobody actually did testing to figure out what your strengths are. So I think that there are great tools out there today, which are ubiquitous. And I actually think everybody should take advantage of themselves because they're eye-opening just to figure out what are your natural proclivities? Like what kind of stuff is going against the grain and what kind of stuff is going for the grain? So I think they'll give broad generalities. Nobody's going to tell you, you should be a gynecologist, right? Like that's not going to happen, but you know. That would be a weird thing for it to come back and say. Yeah, I mean, maybe one day AI, who knows, you know, like the gynecologist gene. But I think that it is a function of using the tools that are out there and experimentation and broad range experimentation. And I think the other thing is, you know, the world is kind of going backwards. There was a great book I read a while ago called Range. I forget the subtitle, but it's something along the lines of why generalists thrive in a specialist world by a guy named David Epstein, if I'm not mistaken. Fantastic book. And, you know, his view is today people are getting ever more specialized, right? Like the specialization continues. And as a consequence of that, people need to know like, oh, if I, if I need to get into this grad school, I need to have gone into this undergrad school. If I want to go into that undergrad, I got to do this and that in high school. In order to do that, I got to do this in elementary school. I got to prepare. And so therefore my kid in diapers has to walk this way and head that way and write a treatise by the time that they're in first grade in order to kind of get on that trajectory. And the premise of the book 
is that, I mean, that's kind of ass backwards. Like, I think that having the full range of experimentation and trying things and figuring out what works, what doesn't, as opposed to just, you know, more of the academic rigor that the world demands from us. So I think for entrepreneurs in particular, I can't say this, like, again, if somebody's going to be a heart surgeon or gynecologist, like you kind of need that academic journey. But for entrepreneurs in particular, that range, that breadth is so foundational and so fundamental. And the ability to pivot, the ability to adjust, the ability to learn things on the fly and to employ an element of plasticity, you know, like a a mental plasticity requires that shift. How do you put that into practice with your children? Or do you even think about that right now? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I try. So there's a couple things that underpin that question. So an entrepreneur is not just the way that they approach the world. It's also a hunger that they have in their belly. And my first order of business, my kids, who are my 12-year-old is the oldest, 10, you know, and two years down, like you said, five little rugrats. My first order of business, I actually try to put that hunger in their belly, not giving them anything other than, you know, the best education, clothes or whatever. But my kid wants a phone, she's going to have to pay for that phone. If she wants to go out and do anything like, let's go get Slurpees for her and her friends, you're going to have to come up, ways to figure out ways to pay for that Slurpee. So as a consequence of that, my daughter from 10 years old has been actually cleaning steps. You know, when when um, snow shovelers come around, they come around, they clean the driveway, they don't clean the steps. She went knocking door to door, her and my son, can I clean your step, a bucket step? You know, they'll, she opened up a, a weekend art school for toddlers. She'll babysit, or whatever it is, right? Point is, now they have a hunger. And it's not about the money. It's just about feeling that I could do this for myself and I could do anything that I put my mind to that's kind of within the range of what we discussed earlier. But I can make that happen. I don't have to wait for daddy. I don't have to wait for mommy. I don't have to, you know. So that's, that's kind of at this age, my focus is on the hunger. I think in terms of breath and generalities, I mean, I think that, you know, when they get a little older, I'd welcome them skipping school for a week if necessary, if it means they're going to go like, I don't know, pick up a trade. I mean, the best thing that happened in this period is that my daughter can't go hang out with her friends. So she, like she wants to learn piano. So we bought her a piano in two weeks time. The kid is like picked up how to play piano, right? Like fantastic because apps and stuff like that. Great. So the one thing I love about YPO, incidentally, is they ha- actually have these parent-child like excursions where you could go and learn, I don't know, Greek mythology in Greece or something like that. Like, So there's a lot of interesting things that one could do, I, I think, in the next phase of my kid's life. The other thing to think about is all your kids are different and some may be entrepreneurial, but some may be the doctor. And how do you decipher that? How do you learn how to identify those skill sets. And, and, and that goes with not only your children, but also building a team. I mean, it's so important that you're able to identify people's strengths and weaknesses and not just like a broad brushstroke of this is how I lead because leadership requires different leadership styles. You know, when someone says like, this is the kind of leader I am, I honestly believe you can't be a good leader if that's what you're saying because different people require completely different approaches. Yeah, I mean, you and I are both fairly candid kind of guys. Like we generally wear our shirts on our sleeves and people pretty much always know where they stand with us, right? Very much so. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and for good and for bad, you know, it cuts both ways. And I thought, you know, in terms of um, your question, like you you mentioned authenticity earlier. When I started my career and in business, I thought that, you know, I just got to be myself with everybody. And this is kind of my authentic self. And by the way, just so you understand, authenticity is like so part of our DNA 
as a firm. If you walk, actually, if you come out the elevators onto our floor, besides the wonderful receptionist, the very first thing that you'll see is actually a picture that our staff actually designed. And on that picture is a, is a path. And over it says the, the prime quadrant path. And path is represents what we don't veer from, but also an acronym for purposeful, authentic, tenacious, and humble. And kind of like what captures the culture that, that and the values that we embody. And having said all that, you come to appreciate over time that being authentic is definitely about being honest, being candid with people, being honest, like admitting when you're wrong or, or in the dark, and especially when it hurts and when it's costly and when the pressure is on. But I think that being authentic all the time, being like totally authentic is also a fool's game. And if people don't agree with you, try that with your wife and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and so, you know, being authentic, it's got to be done sensibly and it's got to be done with empathy. And I remember like there was some comedian that once said, always be yourself unless yourself is an asshole. Right. So <laughs> and I think there's a fundamental difference between being inauthentic and being diplomatic or strategic. And so. I think bringing that to bear, like you said, in every instance in how you how you lead and how you interact with people is critical. There's a lot of people on that point of being authentic and being a leader in general. One of the hardest things I think on earth is, especially as a CEO and a young CEO like we, I mean, we're the same age, although we don't look the same age, we are, <laughs> is, is, is getting a whole bunch of disparate, really smart leaders unto themselves to follow, you know, one common vision, right? And I say common because it doesn't have to just be your vision, right? I think a vision is something that's developed amongst numerous people, but maybe the fine tuning of that vision is, is the responsibility of the CEO. How is it that you go about getting people to buy into following, like you said, that path? What are the tools that you use to ensure that you have alignment amongst the most critical people within your organization? Initially, and I'll, I'll start with the mistakes that I made in the early days, is you think that by just talking about it, you get the job done. Initially, you think that if you say it enough, people will, will catch on and they will just kind of follow your lead. They, they get with the program. And then you kind of realize that you're walking alone, right? And I don't know, whoever said the expression, like a leader without followers is just a guy going for a walk, right? So like I was just a guy going for a walk spewing cultural epitaphs or whatever it is. So I think that the alignment with vision and alignment with values and culture in particular really starts actually before they show up at your doorstep. So much of it is finding people that actually in their heart and soul share that value system without maybe articulating it in quite the way you did, maybe without either as a function of coherence or just they kind of use different terminology to say the same thing. So I think in all of our interviewing processes, I spent a lot of time asking people weird questions that nobody else asked them, not because I'm trying to be quirky, but simply because I'm trying to understand how they think. And, you know, when you ask people both how their friends would describe them, you ask people the few things that they surprise themselves with. You ask people that their contrarian views on the world, you start to like pull apart, like you kind of start diplomatic. Those are the diplomatic ones, the ones that I get sued uh, for. Uh, I'll leave off the show. But, <laughs> yeah, in earnest, like getting to the heart of who people are before you bring them aboard is is 90% of the battle, I think. 
And beyond that, it's leading by example and talking less and doing more. And uh, I've kind of come to learn. One of the things that was really impactful on me, there was like an analogy, again, in a Jewish story, but relevant everywhere. And it was like, you know, this particular fellow, he grew up, he wants to be a, a rabbinical leader. So he grew up and he said, yeah, my mission is going to be to change the world and so on and so forth. And of course, you know, years go by and he's like, I'm not changing the world, you know, like, let me change my goals. Like, and he's like, well, let me change my, I'm just going to change my country because that's, that's a more manageable kind of objective. And of course, years go by and you can't do that. I said, okay, let me just change and impact my city. And years go by, I can't do that. Then my street, then my neighborhood, whatever it is, right? All the way down to his family. And afterwards, you realize I can't even change my family. And he said, you know what? All I'll focus on is just changing myself and improving myself and impacting, you know, how I show up. And what was the way the story plays out is, of course, the guy changed himself. And all of a sudden, he started seeing his family changing and his family changing, his street changes and the neighborhood and the city and the whatever, whatever. You get the drift. So I think that every meaningful shift in what you want from the world has to start internally. I mean, it really does. And if you're not rock solid internally, expecting that out of other people is, is a fool's game. That's a really interesting way of articulating it. You know, I, I speak on a similar tangent to what you just said. I'm a massive believer in being vulnerable. You know, I think that, you know, if you're interviewing that person and asking those questions, you're not going to get a real answer unless you're perceived as someone who is yourself capable of being vulnerable. And I like to expose my own insecurities and my own fears. And I think it's really important that as a leader, you don't just come across as a stoic, unrelatable, unmoving object. I think it's super important that there's a humanness and uh, a willingness to be open because I think it's very difficult to ask people around you to be open if you're not willing to do that yourself. Absolutely. Ray Dalio has this whole radical candor thing. And, um, you know, again, it's not for everyone. There's a lot of people that are quite uncomfortable in that regime, right? It is uncomfortable. It definitely is. It's uncomfortable for all of us, but there are some people that just can't even exist in that. You know, I think we're fortunate. We live in a society that's generally, that's even a viable option. I mean, certainly you go to certain, I mean, when I travel to Asia, yeah, try saying whatever's on your mind, people think you're like out to lunch, right? Like, Luckily, they wouldn't understand us, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to ask the translator to make stuff up just <laughs> to, to have credibility there. But um, I found that people, and particularly intelligent, successful people, which is the bulk of who we interact with, could read car salesman a mile away. They know when you're, you have a bill of goods. And if you don't, the second that you lose that integrity, that authenticity, that whatever, I mean, maybe you gain something in the short game, but you kind of lose it in the long game. Couldn't agree with you more. What makes someone that used car salesman from someone who's just a good salesperson, in my opinion, is the level of authenticity. Like that is, and, and that used car salesman could actually not be a bad person. You know, they, they could genuinely believe that that car is a good car. But there's just the, like layered on with no authenticity. It's just like, it's cheesy. It doesn't work. I mean, actually, the sad part is it does work for some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. We got, you know, I, I told you I'd only keep you for an hour and I'm going to be true to my word. I want to touch on two more kind of themes. One being, you know, your philanthropic endeavors and, and, and the other being Prime Quadrant itself. Maybe let's start with Prime Quadrant because... How did you get into this business? I mean, like, because it's so authentically you, 
right? I mean, like, I think you were just built for what you do. And, and I want you to explain to people what you do. But how did that come to be from that kind of eclectic background? Notwithstanding that I have a couple degrees in finance, I never actually thought in my wildest dreams I'd be in finance. I owned operated businesses. I've ran organizations. Again, I'll give you the short story versus the long story. But the long and short of it is I learned what the financial world offered or didn't offer by making a lot of mistakes and a lot of bad decisions and looking around at the advisors that I had around me thinking, this can't be all there is. This like this just can't be. Around the same time, actually a few years prior, I had met a gentleman that was my former partner by the name of Ian Rosmarin. And Ian, we connected on a charitable context and we could come back to that. But for whatever reason, he took a liking to me. And um, over the years, you know, he sort of asked me to, to partner with him and join him in kind of building out a disruptive service in the financial advisory world. And when he started speaking to me, it was Chinese because I really didn't, it was like 2006, 2007. I didn't actually understand what he was talking about. But when I went through 2008, I went through the crisis with my own assets and my own investments. And at the time I was overseeing the offshore endowment for, for Yishiba University and, and Canadian assets and others. And having seen, been around the table, the boardroom table at an endowment with investment committee members that were some of the most accomplished wealth creators, but absolutely clueless as to what to do with a passive portfolio. So I recognize, number one, that the art and science of wealth creation and the art and science of wealth preservation are two completely different kettle of fish. And that's number one. Number two, I had a whole bunch of advisors who were advising me on my own assets. And basically in the aftermath of 2008, all of them went in the same direction. All of them had the same narrative. In my tiny little brain, I thought I was actually diversifying. But then what I quickly realized is, wait a second, they're all playing with the same toolkits and it's a limited toolkit. And everybody's either in the business of gathering assets, which is how we make money, or transacting with assets, which is how we make money, which is fine, both respectable endeavors, but there was nobody who was providing unbiased, conflict-free advice, irrespective of where the assets sat, irrespective of which transactions were done or not done, irrespective of how much was invested where and how and through whom. And when I realized that that gap existed in the marketplace, I said, well, it's seems fairly obvious. Somebody should be providing unbiased advice across all asset classes, across all geographies, and helping people make the best decisions that they can make and, and make sure that they have the highest probability of meeting their specific goals. And at that point in time, Ian and I came together and Ian became effectively my mentor. Now, as the years went on, we grew. Eventually, Ian grew out of business. I mean, he's still a client, but uh, he's no longer in the business, uh, no longer a partner. And uh, we brought on other partners and other team members and, and have grown uh, considerably since. So I think the vision always was, and the vision continues to be, to effectively build the McKinsey for the family office world, sort of a true advisory solution. And, and that may be the bad analogy, but you know, a true conflict-free advisory solution for ultra high net worth investors and family offices. And so that's what we continue to do. I think we're maybe in the top of the first inning. I mean, you know, you start approaching 40 people and clients on three continents, but quite frankly, we're learning every single day. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface. You so clearly love what you do. What is it about exactly what you do that you love so much? It's a couple things. I mean, number one, I love the fact I never ever have to look anybody 
in the eye and say, I did recommended anything, said anything for any reason other than your ultimate benefit. There is never one iota, not one piece of guidance, advice, recommendation, whatever that I will make that will be beneficial to me at your expense. And having that freedom is like, is liberating, it's comforting. And I think our team and our staff really enjoy that as well. Number two, we're in a business where you never arrive. Like every single day, we have to be learning. Every single day, we have to be challenging our assumptions. I thought initially for the first however many years, I thought, well, I'm not from this industry, so I'm learning every day and I'm, the volume of that I have to process through my little brain is immense. And, you know, I kind of got goaded into thinking temporarily, very, very briefly, that I sort of knew something about the investment world. And then pretty much every day, I may start with that thought by 7.30 a.m., but by 6 o'clock, 7 p.m., I realized how ignorant I was that morning. And that's a blessing. I mean, that gives you tremendous sense of curiosity, of interest, of engagement with the world. And then the other thing that I enjoy is that I learn more from the families we work with, from our clients, than I think they learn from me. I mean, very flattered if they think they actually learn something from us or me in particular, but I learn way more from them, their businesses, their experience, their wisdom. And I get paid for that, which is it's awesome. So helping people meet their goals, giving out unbiased advice, building a great team and being surrounded and inspired by a great team, you know, learning from our families and now also learning from the team that's uh, infinitely smarter than, than I am is a blast. I mean, what, what could I ask for? Like, I, I would do this for free. Your comment around always being humbled by the, you know, an hour into the workday and thinking you knew, you, you knew something. It reminds me of my golf game. And I think that's why some of those other extracurricular activities are so engaging for people that, you know, love the idea of never actually arriving. I love that statement when a, that, that struck a chord with me because uh, I think everyone always feels like the point of life is the end goal. And the reality is, I think that's backwards. I think that the point of life is the journey. And knowing that you are actually never going to arrive is actually quite a liberating feeling because then you, then all you could do is just wake up every day, do the best you can and focus on the journey and not actually worry about too far down the road. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, to your point, like I remember reading a study where they asked people where they, they said, what's enough? doesn't matter. Enough could be knowledge, but enough, more commonly people ask in the context of like, when have you made enough? When, when do you know you're successful? And, you know, the famous JP Morgan line when he was like one of the most affluent people in America, they said, you know, when will you be happy? And he said, with just a little bit more, you know, <laughs> and the, the actual, the research on it is again, I forget who conducted the study, I forget the psychologist behind, but anyway, but when they, in one of the studies that I remember reviewing, they said that the average person, if you ask them, what is enough for you? They will say two to three times what I currently have. And it's a perpetually moving target. If you believe that at some point, you're going to get to that enough. I just don't think one is being realistic about the human condition. We never have enough, but embracing that not from a materialistic point of view, but embracing that from a growth or a learning point of view is inspiring, is transformative, and it also just makes the day a lot more exciting. Last point I want to kind of cover is uh, philanthropy. I know that you're, you're very involved in numerous philanthropic uh, endeavors. And we don't need to go into each one. I think that, uh, you know, that there's, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, but my question for you is maybe a little different one, is how has your focus 
on philanthropy benefited your non-philanthropic you know, endeavors, whether it's changed you as a human being, whether it's changed the way you think about things. Do the two play together or are they truly just different things completely? And when you're focused on philanthropy, that's what it is. And when you focus on business, that's what it is. It's a great question. A really great question. Incidentally, I co-authored an entire book on that question. So one of the books that uh, I did work on that I co-authored with uh, Chuck English, that's called The Philanthropic Mind. The question wasn't a mistake, Mo, just Uh, FYI. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not going to actually go deep into that. But what I will say is I recall when I, you know, I had an interim position. It was supposed to be a one-year interim CEO position, became kind of a five-year interim CEO position for Yeshiva University. And when I kind of, again, when I migrated between that world and the nonprofit world and the for-profit world, you come to realize that there's a lot of things that are interesting and unique in the nonprofit world that should have relevance and resonance in the for-profit world. And a lot of things in the for-profit world that should be amplified and you know employed in the nonprofit world. And so I always felt that that cross-pollination would be beneficial. So for example, having a business that has such a clear mission, which should have evangelists and people that are passionate about what they're doing, and being able to translate that in terms of engagement to all stakeholders, transferring. I mean, and then on the other side, having you know certain financial disciplines and financial viability exercises that you know in the nonprofit world you sometimes um, are a little more. Some are more lackadaisical with it than you would typically see on the for-profit side. But I think on a personal level, to me, I mean, the, it's kind of like asking me, does your right hand help your left hand? I mean, they kind of are just all both a part of who I am. I've always been interested in creating impact through whatever you do. I am my, both in my giving and my ability to give. I'm far from some of the most impressive people that I know and I admire and uh, in terms of the quantum and of time, money, resources that I'm able to contribute. But what I've always tried to do is employ leverage in philanthropy. So, you know, you mentioned the conference, but I could give you a whole bunch of other examples that we try to think about. You know, the con- the whole concept of the conference was, you know, if we could, if let's say I'm going to give a, a $25,000 gift or something like that to a hospital, could I take that $25,000, redeploy it into an event that's going to raise $200,000 and have that greater impact? And with that event, could we also catalyze a whole bunch of other donors and supporters to hear the story and get engaged? And that was, it was as simple as that. And so if I could find a unique opportunity to add value, both the beauty of the conference is it adds value to the participants. Like actually it's an educational event. It adds value to the organization because this is money they wouldn't have seen otherwise. It adds value to the very sponsors that now support it and actually allow the event to raise more money. And, you know, whenever you could kind of, bring all those win-wins together, I get a kick out of that. So on, on a personal level, are there knock-on effects that are personally beneficial? For sure, for sure. I mean, just the fact that people, I would hope that regardless whether I was involved in philanthropy or not, people would sort of see me as a person that cares about others. One of the best business pieces of um, advice that anybody has given me, there's a, a fellow that, close friend, who um, owns a bunch of car dealerships and is very successful. And I asked him once, you know, like, what's the secret? Like, what has been your secret? And he said something very interesting to me. He said, I've never done a single deal with anyone where I didn't leave something on the table. He said, always deliberately and transparently leave something on the table, slightly exceed expectations. 
like give more than 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 you think. And so that was a, a remarkable message. And I, I don't remember who said it, but somebody also said, you know, you can have anything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want, right? And so I think it's much more meaningful, it's much more fulfilling to focus on giving and helping the people in your universe and whether that your universe is your, your business, your community, your family, your neighborhood, your the organizations you're involved in, schools, whatever, you end up getting a lot of what you want in life. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be quid pro quo. In fact, it probably shouldn't because it'll water down the entire enterprise. But long term, you're going to get a lot of good stuff out of that equation by just trying to wake up every day and giving a little bit more than you expect from others. Well, I cannot think of a better way to end this podcast than on that note. So Mo, uh, I thank you so much for being a part of this. I actually totally forgot that we were being recorded. That was awesome. And uh, you know, for those who want to uh, you know, continue to follow you, what's the best way? I know that they can find your books on Amazon. They can find you on LinkedIn. Probably following me on LinkedIn. I am technologically backwards. I'm honestly, there are great grandparents walking around today that could school me in basically any technology under the sun. And my kids or my staff will actually do everything up to opening up my desktop. So I think following me on LinkedIn is probably as close as it's going to get. Perfect. And again, check out Mo's books on Amazon and anywhere else that they're sold, Mo. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Indigo, you know. Again, thank you so much, Mel. All the best. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.